0: So how can a loving God send people to hell? Um, my, my first encounter with uh, the whole thought of hell, as, as much as I can remember, comes from the, when I was about nine or 10 years old. Someone gave me a track. Uh, a track if some of you are old enough to remember these tracks. They were like a three inches by four inches, a little booklet for them, and it kind of read like a story, a narrative, uh, and told a story. This particular one I was reading was on hell. It was not very subtly titled. The title of this track was called Scream, uh, and uh, it was a story in this track of a construction worker who had another worker with him on the job site, this, this skyscraper, and uh, his friend was trying to talk to him about God and about Jesus, and and he didn't want anything to do with God, and he, he sort of mocked his friend for being a Christian, and the story develops. He has this accident on the construction site. He falls to his death, and and as you turn the page, the next thing you discover that here he is in this dark, cavern-like cell in heaven. In hell. He's, uh, his, his cell is, is uh, decorated with stalagmites and stalactites. It's guarded by this cartoon-looking like demon who's keeping him there, holding him in this, in this prison-like cell for the day of judgment. And finally, this construction worker is brought before God at the great white throne, and God replays his life for him and uh, expresses sorrow as this, this man is sentenced uh, to separation from God for eternity. Uh, in, in hell. and the last picture is the picture that stuck in my mind as a nine or ten year old it 's this picture of this ocean of of flames, this sort of magma like hot ocean of flames and you could make out silhouettes of people in agony in this ocean of of horror and in the front was this hand sticking up sort of this hand that gave you the idea of just such agony and excruciating pain and I remember when I saw that picture as a nine or ten year old, I knew I did not want to go there. I did not want to go there. So I began the practice at an early age of inviting Christ into my life three or four times a day. I did did not want to go to hell because that was scary. And that was an image that was in my head of what it meant to to go to a place and be separated from God. And and the whole whole concept of hell and human suffering in hell, uh, it's disturbing and, and unsettling. And if it doesn't disturb you, if it doesn't unsettle you, I would say there's something wrong. In fact, some some well-known authors and thinkers have some pretty strong things to say about this whole doctrine, the whole teaching about hell. Lauren Anderson, an author, uh, puts it this way. He's talking about how the objection of, of the doctrine of hell, he says, so revolting to my moral nature is the creed of eternal punishment that it, more than any other cause, produces the most widespread unbelief. Compared with this, all objections to Christianity fade to insignificance. Anderson saying that this whole idea of hell and eternal punishment is, any other objection is nothing compared to this. C.S. Lewis, renowned thinker and author, also has a pretty strong opinion about the doctrine of hell. He writes There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell. If it lay in my power. This doctrine is one of the chief doctrines on which Christianity is attacked as barbarous and the goodness of God is impugned. We are told it is a detestable doctrine and I too detest it from the bottom of my heart. I mean, this is a topic. That, that does something to you, that, that raises questions that, that really is, is hard to get your head around. And, and even the brightest uh, thinkers and writers have struggled with this whole idea, this concept of hell. And as we look at this question of how could a loving God send people to hell, what we want to do is not let images of hell be formed for us by, by cartoon-like tracks or movies or artwork. Let's let scripture talk to us about what hell is because I think what we, we may discover is that we may have some misunderstanding about what hell is. Now hear me clearly on on this. Hell is a real place. There's a reality called hell, a separation from God, that is is horrible. Yet some of the things that we would would conjure up as images of hell are are descriptions or metaphors that come from the scriptures, that come from Jesus, to describe what hell is. They are contrasts. It's, It's up and down, in and out, dark and light. There are metaphors that are used to describe what hell is like that if you take them literally, really they're in contradiction with themselves because at one time you're told it's darkness and the time you're told you get got flames and fire. And if there's flames and fire, there's light, right? So what is hell really like? We're going to look at a story in Matthew chapter 13, a short little parable that Jesus tells that gives us a little bit of a beginning on on answering this question, what is hell like? And then as we move to the question of answering, how could a loving God send someone there? So if you're not already there, Matthew chapter 13, would you stand as I read this this short parable that's told by Jesus? You'll find it on page 969 uh, in your pew Bibles if you didn't bring a Bible with you. And you can follow along as I read. A little context here. Uh, Jesus has been describing the kingdom of heaven. And so now he's going to talk about the end of the age. What happens at at the end of the age. Uh, And so he's going to tell this this parable of the nets. Uh, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. Verse 48. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish... In baskets, but threw away the bad, threw through the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures. As well as old. This is God's holy word, and you may be seated. So what is hell and how could a loving God send someone there? Right from the story, we see some some descriptions of, of what hell is like. In in verse 50, after this the separating of good and bad in the parable of the fish, uh, we, we we see that the, the bad ones, the the wicked, are thrown or are sent to a fiery furnace. Now, if you're a first-century Jew, this is going to be a bit of a touchstone for you because you know a story about a fiery furnace that, that's it's found in, in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, a, it's a fiery furnace that was created by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, and there were three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that refused to worship this false idol, and the, the, the consequences of refusing to worship were to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Jesus, sort of turning the tables here, is is saying that that hell is a place for people who refuse to worship, and fire is, is is symbolic of judgment. Fire is, it's a judgment, hell is a place of judgment for those who refuse to worship. So right from the beginning, we see that, yes, there is judgment in hell. And then Jesus continues on. He describes that, that in hell, that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, describing sorrow, gnashing of teeth, uh, which is a picture of intense regret. It's intense regret. Uh, being in this place where you like, I, can't, I, w- I wish I had listened. I wish I had responded. And in sorrow, because you're in a place of judgment for refusal to worship, Just a few of the pictures that Jesus uses in this short little parable to describe what the end of the age is like, what hell is like. Matthew chapter 22, if you still have your Bibles open, you can flip over to that parable because Jesus again tells another story, and this one's a parable of a wedding banquet. Now, I'm not going to read the parable for us, but what's happening in this parable is that people are being invited to a wedding banquet, and uh, when it, the story ends, there's somebody in there who doesn't have wedding clothes. Um, they shouldn't be at the wedding banquet, and then they're, they're tossed out. Verse 13 says, then the king told the attendants, take this person, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there we get the metaphor again of weeping and gnashing of teeth, sorrow and intense Regret. But then this picture of outside into the darkness. Darkness being a description of hell. I, I have four kids, and when Shreen and I were were would put our kids to bed at night when, when they were younger, um, our kids did not like going to, to, going to sleep in the dark, like many of uh, your children, and perhaps you, you want a light on, you want a little night light on because there's something that's, that's scary about uh, the dark, or something foreboding about intense darkness, there's a terror or a despair or a fear that's attached to it. It's a visionless reality that, that stirs up fear. And Jesus is saying, yes, hell is a fiery furnace. It's a place of judgment for refusal to worship. It's a place of sorrow and of weeping. It's a place of gnashing of teeth, intense regret. It's also a place of darkness, this visionless reality that brings fear with it. One of the most common words that Jesus uses to describe hell is a word that, is, uh, that really it's a place just outside Jerusalem. In the New Testament, uh, it's called Gehenna. It's this valley outside of Jerusalem, and in Jesus' day, it was like a a, a, a garbage dump, a smoldering, a burning garbage dump. It was in a valley called Ben himmon and actually, uh, Gehenna is a Greek translation from that that Hebrew uh, word. And it this this valley, if you keep going back in the Old Testament, actually, this valley has been a place of of idolatry and and. Uh, and worship of idols, and led, in, led, into, led into worship of these idols is, is something that the kings did. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 6, we have a king named Manasseh, who is the son of Hezekiah, a godly king, but Manasseh leads the people into idolatry. They're worshiping a false god named Molech, and this idol is set up in this valley, ben Himmon or Gehenna, and it, it's a large idol with outstretched hands, it's hollow on the inside, and in worship, what they would do is they would start fires on the inside of this idol and heat it up, and then what would happen is that people would come and they would sacrifice their children and place them on the, the outstretched, you know, burning hot hands of this, this idol. It's, it's a horrible picture, and, and one of Israel's kings does this very thing, and, and God is... He, he, he never asked people to sacrifice children, and, and it's detestable to him. It's a horrible picture. It's a, it's a picture of, of, a, of a people who end up becoming something they were never intended to be. He never intended people to become like this. And so this valley, ben Himmon in the Old Testament, and Gehenna in the New Testament, is this place of uh, that represents a gathering place for people who were who have become like they've never intended, that like God never intended them to be. In fact, some biblical scholars tell us that when, when the Romans crucified criminals, that they would throw some of the bodies into the Gehenna, and there that they would be just thrown into this human waste dump. Hell is, is a fiery furnace. It's a place of judgment. It's a, it's a place uh, of judgment for f- refusal to worship. It's a place of, of weeping, of sorrow, gnashing of teeth, uh, intense regret, darkness, and fear, it's a place where people go, that they were never intended to go. It's a place of separation from God. Now, this horrible place that we know as hell, how, let's get back to the question, how could a loving God, how could a God who is love send people to a place like that? I mean, that, that just sounds cruel. How could a loving God do that? I have four kids, and I love my kids dearly. I'll never forget when our firstborn came along, my daughter Beth, and just holding her in my arms and just staring at her, and when she got to the point where she'd sleep in a crib, and that was an accomplishment, and you put put her in a crib, I just would love to stare at her and watch her sleep. I just love my daughter Beth, love all my kids, and as your kids get older and they, they move from being a baby to a toddler and, and you know, they, they're, they're starting to go to school, you, you love your kids, you adore your kids, but you, you don't love everything they do, right? Like there was this one time when we were, I was going to mow the lawn in our backyard and I walked to the back shed to get the mower pull the mower out I go to grab the handle that you know that pull the rope it starts the mower and as I grab the handle to pull back the the rope is hanging limp and I look at it and it has been cleanly cut with something and I'm like how is this possible why would why would someone do this and I walk in the house holding the handle with the rope hanging from it and I I just walk in like who did who did this and uh, my son, my youngest son, Cal, just falls to the carpet in the living room, and he just, like, starts wailing and crying. He's like, you know, like, he's just been convicted of a serious crime, and I'm like, like he's just he's in tears. I'm like, Cow, what, what were you thinking? Why did, why did you just cut the lawnmower rope? And he, Dad, you bought me a new knife, and I wanted to try it out. <laughs> so he's just walking in the backyard swinging a knife, and he saw this rope, poof. You know, the one rope goes in the motor, and there's that, and he's just like terrified that judgment day is coming when he's gonna be found out, and here it is. <laughs> you, you love your kids, but you really don't love everything they do. This same son, in whom I'm well pleased, doesn't, when he was younger, didn't like to go to bed with, the, with you know, in the darkness, and so, um, you know, we'd leave a light on, and then when he'd wake up in the middle of the night and he'd need to use the toilet, He'd be terrified to walk down the hallway to go to the bathroom. So in his logic, he just thought it would make sense if he just went in his toy box in the closet. Well, days and weeks are going by, and Trina like, man, the boy's room smells like a bathroom, and, uh, and then we realize, the kid's been using the toy box as a toilet. Who, whose kid is this? You love your kids, but you do not love everything they do. And what do you do when they do things like this? You discipline them, right? You're shaping them. You want them to become a godly man or a godly woman or at least someone who knows where to go to the bathroom. You're shaping them and disciplining them. And so you give them timeouts, you correct them, sometimes you spank, sometimes you take away privileges depending on their age, you you, you, you can't drive the car, you can't spend the night at a friend's house, you can't use the computer, no movie. You you start thinking about how how do I shape this young woman or this young man? You begin to discipline them. And let me just tell you, yes, God is loving, but he does not love everything that we do. He doesn't love everything we do. In fact, Proverbs chapter 6 Verses 16 through 19 gives us a very clear picture of some things that God doesn't love. Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. If you've ever rolled your eyes at someone in contempt, if you've ever lied, if you've ever uh, murdered someone or hurt someone, if you've ever plotted against someone wickedly, if you've ever overreacted and were quick to respond to somebody in in a wrong way, if you ever slandered or gossiped someone, if you've ever caused disunity or brought strife into a relationship, you need to know, God does not love these things. Yes, God is loving, but the scriptures tell us that he de- de- detests them, actually, these things he hates. If you're, if you're a fan of the King James Version, he calls it an abomination. Would it be loving of God if someone were slandering you and gossiping about you, and he just went, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, you, don't worry about it, you'll, you'll get over it. Is it is it a big deal? Maybe you're a victim of abuse, maybe going through abuse right now. Is it loving of God for him to say, yeah, you know, it's not that big. Don't worry, you'll get over it. No. Because God is loving, there are things that God does not love. In fact, that's a good thing. We're, we're glad that he's loving because he loves justice, right? And because he is loving, there are some things he doesn't love, and that's good news for us. Yet maybe you're already starting to ask the question, yeah, Steve, that's great. Your son does some weird stuff, and you discipline him, and you give him a timeout, but you don't give him a timeout for eternity. Isn't it overkill? I mean, isn't it overkill that I mean, you're, you're live, you mean your life, for 70, maybe 80 years, and then God says, "You never followed my son, so now you're going to go to hell and you're going to suffer in a place of fear and darkness and regret and sorrow for eternity? Is, it, is not that overkill? It's a question that, that is often asked. But when you think about it, even in our own world, there are crimes that, that people commit that take 30 minutes to an hour, maybe it took a day to plan it all out. And because of the seriousness of the offense, if you're convicted and found guilty, you may spend the rest of your life in separation from society. So it's not about balancing out time. It's about the seriousness of the offense that predicates the sentence by the judge. That's how it is even here in our country. So how could a loving God send people to hell? Really, when you start to think about it, the question behind the question that, that, that stirs us and troubles us, really the question behind the question is, is God fair? Is God fair? And this is really where we need to take a time out and remind ourselves of who we are and who God is. Because sometimes we forget who God is and sometimes imagine him just to be a little bit bigger than who we are. One writer of scripture puts it this way, that he is the potter and we are the clay. That we we are all these these lumps of clay. We are the created ones. He is the creator. And every once in a while, these lumps of clay gather around And they begin to have conversations about who the potter is. And and pride and even arrogance begins to slip in. And we question God. And God can handle our questions. Indeed he can. Yet he doesn't like pride. See Isaiah says in chapter 40 of, of his book that this God who we worship is described as a God who holds the the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. I mean, in your mind, just take a trip to the coast and look at the Pacific Ocean and then add to the Pacific Ocean all the other oceans, seas, lakes, rivers, streams, ponds. Collect all that water together and imagine a God who holds all the seas and oceans in the hollow of his hand. That's an impressive God. Isaiah describes uh, God measuring out the universe. We send rockets and satellites and telescopes into the universe to, to take pictures and to measure. and It's this incredibly huge expanse. It's so mind-boggling to try and even imagine how big the universe is. Yet Isaiah says he measures the universe with the span of his hand. That's an impressive God. It says he holds the dust of the earth. The planet Earth is, is the dust of this planet, is, is, he just kind of carries it in a basket. It's pretty small compared to who he is. I, I have trouble remembering names sometimes and, and remembering things. And yet, yet, Isaiah tells us that, that he's, he knows the number of the stars that are in the heavens and he's named them all. His, his mind is lively and active. That's impressive. And we're also told that his ways are not like our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And could it be, could it be, that his sense of of justice and what is right and what is fair is just a little bit better developed and more thought out than our sense of fairness and justice. Could it be that this impressive God who holds the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, who numbers the stars and knows them by name, who measures the universe with a handspan, who carries the dust of the earth in a basket, it's nothing to him, This God is incredibly brilliant and wise. Could it be that his sense of justice and love is more well developed, better developed, than yours and my sense of what is fair and right? And I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes. We're lumps of clay, he's the potter. We're, We're the created ones, he's the creator. He's not some divine dictator deity in the, in the heavens who looks at people and randomly sends them to eternal punishment because, because he just gets a kick out of it. No, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, tells us uh, this. says says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their wicked ways. John chapter 3, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God takes no joy in people being separated from him. And the reality of people who end up in a horrible place that we call hell can be summed up with with this final quote from a pastor friend of mine. Where he says, hell is the end of a very long road away from God. When people are sent to hell, they aren't sent to some surprising destination. They merely arrive at a place they have been traveling to all their lives. Let Let me just read that again. Hell is the end of a very long road away from God. When people are sent to hell, they are not sent to some surprising destination. They merely arrive at a place that they have been traveling to all their lives. Think about it. If you've been going through your life and you've been rejecting God, saying, I want nothing to do with God, I hate the whole notion of God, I don't believe in God, and then you die, and then God makes you live with him forever? Is that loving? No, he he is loving, but there are some things he can't love. Let me just close with a couple thoughts. First, a word to those of us who are believers. Let me just remind us that hell is not our message. Hell is not our message. We are not at our best when the lead line of our story is hell. Now, our message is Jesus. Yes, we know there is a reality of heaven and hell, but our lead line, our lead story is Jesus. And in him, people come alive. We've seen that today. Hell is not our message. It's a reality, which is why we are intensely missional and which is why we are intensely missionary. It's why we commission families and send them to places where people haven't heard so that everyone can have the joy of being reconciled to a holy, loving God. Hell is not our message. Jesus is our message, and we are intensely missional and missionary because of who Jesus is. And let me speak to those of you who are here today who who haven't begun a relationship with Christ, who perhaps you describe yourself as an investigator or a seeker. God has given to you the gift of being human. You have been given the gift of being a human being and he will not dehumanize you. He will not dehumanize you by forcing you to choose his son Jesus. By being human, you you get the freedom of of choice. And God will not dehumanize you and force you to choose Jesus. He will not strip you of your dignity and rob you of your freedom of choice. But you need to listen very carefully. What you choose is very important. Who you choose is will lead you on a journey. And God's heart for you is that that journey would be a journey with him so that you could enjoy the joy of heaven forever. We have a cross over here with white ribbons on it, names on it, and people who have begun journeys with Christ, maybe today you'd want to do the same. Pound a white ribbon and a cross. How could a loving God send people to hell? Perhaps the fairer question is how could a loving God not send people to hell who really, that is where they want to go anyways. To not do anything or be anywhere near God.